this morning we saw different things and uh, we do need to finish the second half of this chapter and then go to Thessalonians to to see what Paul has to say about these matters with uh, much clarity over there. Um, the emphasis this morning, uh, we reminded ourselves that we need to be careful how we go about interpreting prophecy. And Paul and I were talking about it you know, this evening or this afternoon. There are different schools of thought concerning the final things and what they call eschatology. And, uh, and both have their good and bad points. Uh, it seems no system is able to make everything fit, uh, which is not strange at all, because as we saw today, especially when it comes to the final things, they will be unraveled uh, in time. Uh, actually is as history will unfold the world shall be able to understand some of the um, some of the mechanics and the particularities of uh, you know what the Bible teaches about the return of Christ and the the end of this world and the beginning of the new uh, which again I think uh, means that uh, I think we should be um, as you all have, <laughs> a, uh, we need to be accepting of the brother of the brethren that may differ slightly on our eschatology. Um, so uh, this is why it was so profitable. I I trust you know this morning to to focus on the big things. What is the enemy after? What, what, what does he want to accomplish? What does he hunger for? And, um, and the emphasis, of course, was on worship. Worship. Universal worship. Every tongue must confess him and bow to him and uh, uh, even God. That's what he asked as he tempted the Lord. Bow before me. And then I'll make you the conqueror of the world, just like he did with many others. I wish I had brought a. Uh, let me shut this uh, thing down. It's. Uh, I don't know why it keeps on doing that. Uh, I wish I had brought a uh, a book I bought the other day for seventy five cents. It's actually a, uh, a study of the mind of Hitler in 1943. It was done as the, the war was actually still going on. Uh, it was an intelligence, uh, somewhat uh, research, studied different sources. And amazing what they could already understand about the man back then. Uh, but... Uh, So let us continue because, um, let us pick it up from uh, verse 5. He was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God 
to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome, to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe and tongue and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone is here, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed. With the sword, with the sword, here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Of course, this is not an incentive to do violence, but it's the language of immutability. What must be, must be. So, at this time, violence must take place, persecution must take place, and it must be, because it is in His plan. Uh, the issue of worship, of adoration, satanic worship, is so central that what follows is very telling concerning this. Because there's another agent then that comes into the scene, uh, the beast from the earth. Verse 11, Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon and he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men and he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he has granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling uh, those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. And he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on the right hand or on their foreheads that no man may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here's wisdom. Let him who understanding uh, has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is number of men. His number is 666. So, again, we do not want to get into the intricacies of this passage. Uh, but what are the things that stand out? Well, first of all, this second beast is, is, comes into the scene to support the first, uh, the first beast, to promote the first beast. The whole purpose of his agency is to promote the credibility of the first beast that uh, the people of all the world will give their assent and give their and render their worship to the first beast. And so again, time and time again over this whole passage, the term worship 
comes there, comes there. And we have uh, explained this morning what that means, how central the element of worship is. Uh, the worship that Satan desires uh, with all of his being. He hungers for that. He wants it. He will obtain it if he would have his way from all the uh, the earth, all mankind, as he has it from his uh, you know demonic hordes. And um, so, in a certain sense, we can put it. If the first beast is the president, the second beast is the vice president, who's there to promote, to support, to give credence to the first beast. Um, Verse 13 reminds us that he performs great signs so that he even makes the fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. Now, if we would go slower on this passage, we would take a moment here and we will then perhaps mention it as we go to Thessalonians that um, yes, this is one of those passages in which signs or miracles uh, are described as coming from a satanic source and not from a divine source. Uh, Just like in the first passage that we read this morning, signs are given to deceive or to seduce. Uh, And uh, now that's a warning. That's a warning um, message of the Bible. That is, uh, signs or miracles, whatever they may be, cannot be taken per se as a sure testimony that a person or a work is of God. Uh, There's plenty of room in the Bible, beginning with Genesis, (laughs) that show how God may give opportunity even for the... um, for false miracles to take place. Or even for true miracles, in the sense that a miracle is some an event that happens that goes beyond the ability of man. And when man sees that something that surpasses his abilities take place, he identifies it with the divine. This must be divine. But the supernatural world is not that is not made only of God. God does not encompass the, how, the, the whole of the supernatural world, if we intend supernatural as that which goes beyond mankind, then also angels are supernatural, or they go beyond mankind. And certainly angels have powers that we do not have. And some things that angels do, if they are good angels, then they come from God. But if they are from bad angels or demons, then they are not from God. They're from a satanic source. So the reason why this vice president here is doing what he's doing is to make the first beast appear divine through miracles. That's why he, as Paul says, that in Thessalonians, he presents himself as divine, as God. 
even sits on the throne of God and pretends to be God. So here we have one of those things, one of those passages that must be interpreted in the light of what Paul says in Second Corinthians. Uh, Satan is able to transform himself in an angel of light. This he most definitely will do in the end times, in the very end, when, when these things will be manifested. If there was a time in which all the tricks that the enemy knows and how he can appear, make something appear to be good while it is evil, that is uh, true while it is false, that it is divine whereas it is satanic, it will be then. It will be then. It will take a lot of discernment to see through what Satan is doing. But again, verse 13, he performs great signs so that he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image and so forth. So these are signs that come down from heaven and they are done to make people believe that this beast, this power, this authority is divine. And so it must be worshipped. I mean, humanity, the whole humanity, will worship this system, will bow down before this system because they believe it is superhuman, it is divine. It, it deserves to be worshipped. Um, and so again, a lot of discernment is necessary, will be necessary then, but it is necessary now. Um, so we must really use an enlightened mind <laughs> through the Word to be able to see through things. Let me... Uh, let me just address a little subject here, which actually is a huge subject. Have you ever heard the phrase uh, "latter rain theology"? The latter rain. Well, it is the theology that is at the uh, foundation of the charismatic movement or the Pentecostal movement of today. What is this uh, letter rain theology? Uh, they take uh, some passages from the prophets, uh, such as you know Zechariah or Joel, and where the prophet speaks of the first rain and the letter rain. And so, in a very perverted way, I believe they identify the first rain as the the miraculous revival that took place in the apostolic times, which the people of God, during which the people of God were given uh, abilities, you know, miraculous abilities, like prophecies and tongues and healings and to, to heal. Uh, and then we see in history that these things uh, you know, disappeared. Uh, that the, the emphasis was put on the Word of God, the message of the Gospel. Now, they, people that believe in the revival of all these miraculous signs today, what are they talking about? They, they say, well, 
uh, that's why the Bible speaks of the first rain and then the latter rain, the final rain. In this final rain that will come down from heaven, there will be a renewal of miraculous gifts, which is the Pentecostal charismatic renewal of miraculous gifts. And that's, this, is very, this is very smart, or clever, I should say, in the sense that by this sort of interpretation, which is very wrong, they explain the gap, the 2,000-year gap, between the first era of miracles, the apostolic era, and this end era, and then the gap that is there in terms of really believable the miracles that happen in history. Of course, I'm not questioning that God can do miracles. <laughs> he is sovereign. He can do as many miracles as He wishes. I'm talking about the, the abilities and the, the gifts given to men to perform miracles and to prophesy and to see in the future and things of this sort. I would take it as the position of this church, as well as of our church, that uh, that uh, uh, most of these things have have been used of God in the primitive church for a very, a very evident purpose, and uh, to, to 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 support and to boost the testimony of the apostles as the church was was you know starting out. But that there's been a disappearance of these of these things, and uh, now why am I saying that? Um, this the, this type of churches historically are called re, re, restorationist. They they are here to restore apostolic Christianity in the sense of miracles and wonders and signs. Um, As a consequence of that approach, they look at people like us, who are very skeptical about all the staking place today, all these millionaires or pastors that seem to be able to speak in tongues and see visions and prophesy. We're very skeptical about that. <laughs> but they look at us as being outside of the will of God. They are the primitive church. They want to go back to what it used to be in the times of the apostles. And they do it by this letter uh, reign theology. The letter reign is the final age of this explosion of miraculous powers that is again given to the church to be able to evangelize the world. Now, I've brought this out here because we will pick it up in Thessalonians as well. Uh, but this is actually what, what is taking place. Uh, there is something to be said about this, however, is that the Bible really never says that before the end times, or before we are in the end times, but before the very end of this world, that the church will know a revival of miraculous powers. The Bible never says that. Actually, it says the opposite. Because Christ, in Matthew 24, points to, when he speaks of the very end of this era, that there will be miracles 
and signs and wonders performed by Antichrists, not by him. And this passage points in the same direction, that there will be a lot of miraculous activities in the world done by forces of evil to seduce people, perhaps of some sort of Christian faith as well, to give credence to uh, the, the new establishment, this worldwide establishment. So this passage, like other passages, and there will be also one in Thessalonians, uh, is telling us to be very cautious. And again, I, I would argue to be very skeptical about what's being sold today in most of our evangelical world. Um, but we will go back to that because it is very important. Um, verse 15, it was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast. That's another miracle. That the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. It takes us back to Nebuchadnezzar and his big image. Uh, you know, the statue and the fact that it had to be worshipped. And... Uh, but again, look, worship, worship. He wants you to bow down and worship Him. Um, he calls us all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand and on the foreheads, so that no man, no, no one, may buy or sell except one who has the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. So again, we are talking about the implementation of a system which is also a financial system, an economical system, from which people will be excluded unless unless they accept this, unless they, they bow, unless they recognize it, unless they adhere and fully pledge themselves to this system. And whoever does not do that will not be able to buy or sell. And whoever does not do that ultimately will be killed. So you talk about mass extermination that will take place on the earth. And the Bible warns us that that will happen to the Christians. Now concerning that final word, uh, 666, uh, I'm not going to get into that. <laughs> uh, we better not chose the rabbit trails. And uh, except perhaps one thing I would say. That the number that the Bible emphasizes is number seven. God divide time in seven days, and then the, the you know, seventh in, ter in terms of years, <laughs> seven years, and then forty nine and the jubilees, and that's how God divided time. And even when He transfers that idea into the spiritual world. He shall say, you shall forgive seven times. And then 70 times seven. <laughs> 490 times. Which is not to be taken literally, but to say that our forgiveness must be large. Must be large to those who fall. Uh, but if, if the number of God is seven, the number of the beast most certainly is six. And this at least must be understood as antithetical, contrary to the principles of God, both in, both in the structure of history, the purpose of history, as well as in the spiritual realm, in terms of grace, you know, versus merit and humility 
versus pride and love versus hate. God's number is seven. Satan's number is six. But I will not go beyond that. Um, let us turn to Second Thessalonians chapter 2. That's where we want to spend the remaining of our time. Now, where uh, in the previous hour we we talked about oh, how important these passages are. I've I've wrestled with some of these eschatological things and um, trying really to to major on what the Bible majors, <laughs> and uh, they're not. They're not easy because in a certain way, you know, to be able to interpret the last book of the Bible, you need to know somewhat uh, what precedes that (laughs) from Genesis to the the letter of Jude. (laughs) So uh, unless you know what precedes Revelation, you will not be able to interpret the book of Revelation uh, uh, correctly. But I would emphasize, I I remember going back many years now, when I, I had myself to come to grips with some of these eschatological views, pre-trip, post-trip, post-meal, amil, I, I decided to shut up every book <laughs> and, uh, and to do one thing, I, to read the New Testament and to say, I'm not going to begin with the book of Revelation because it is allegorical, so it's more difficult to interpret I, I need to focus on the apostolic letters. Let me read all those passages and, and, and um, interpret all those passages that directly address the, the, the theme of the end times and see in the mind of the apostles how they teach it. What, what, what do they teach? What structure do they give me in terms of broad, the broad outline? so that I may at least grasp that for sure. And another important question was, how did the apostles interpret the prophecies of the Old Testament? See, how do you interpret symbolically? You spiritualize everything, as some people do, or you interpret literally, uh, as some people do. And, but my question was, how did Christ and the apostles interpret the prophecies of the Old Testament. And if you have not done that exercise, that is, read and study every passage of the New Testament in which passages of the Old Testament are quoted and interpreted by the apostles, it will it may give you some surprises. I'm not going to get into that because it's not my place. But it is, uh, I think, the surest way to understand the Old Testament prophecies. Um, But here, for example, we have one of those passages. This is Paul speaking of the end times, uh, of the very end, of what will happen in the very end when Christ shall come back. So, uh, let us plunge into it for the time that we have. Uh, for you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not... I'm sorry, I'm in 
First Thessalonians. Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and our gathering together to Him, what he's talking about? He's talking about the coming of Christ, the return of Christ, the ingathering of God's people. Uh, the Greek terms that he uses here, you know, parousia and other terms, are just those that are used everywhere in the New Testament for the literal second coming of Christ and our in, the ingathering of his people. What does he say? We ask you, not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. The day of Christ, the day of Christ's return, the ingathering of the saints has not come. You know, uh, there were what they call realized eschatology. There were those type of tendencies even back in those days. As if, in some way, Christ had come in a spiritualized sense that could not be foreseen or felt, was not tangible. Paul says, no, no. When Christ will come, He will come. Verse 3, Let no one deceive you by any means. For that day, that day stands for, of course, this is goes back to uh, verse 2. Uh, speaking of the day of Christ. That's speaking of the, the, the final day. The final day. That day will not come unless the fallen away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed. The son of perdition. So there are two things, Paul says, must happen before Christ comes and gathers in his people. First of all, the falling away. Uh, the word that Paul uses here is the word apostasy. And what's Paul talking about? Uh, well, the word seems to be a reference to Christianity because it implies a departure from, a defection from what you used to hold. So there is a falling away, there is a, a defecting from, an abandoning what you used to hold and profess. And Paul seems here to make reference to the fact that prior to the coming of Christ, there will be a falling away of Christianity. That you know, Christianity will uh, be perverted will will leave his first love, will abandon the gospel. Uh, and it, this thing seems to be so general that m Paul marks it as the falling away, a very definite a downfall or defection or apostasy of Christianity just at, the, at that very end. Now, let us stop for a moment. Because this seems to be quite in tune with what Christ taught in different passages, especially when he says, when I will come back, will I find faith on the earth? Will I find faith on the earth? 
It seems that in the very, very end, there will be really a remnant of people that will have been and stayed faithful. The most of Christianity as we know it will be no longer true Christianity because it will have fallen away from the truth. So it will be a... um, a counterfeit sort of Christianity. Now, if this is true, as it very well appears to be true, <laughs> uh, and let me remind you again another passage in Matthew 24 when the Lord says, uh, when uh, just as it happened in the days of Noah or in the days of Lot, <laughs> you know, people went on doing their own thing, unmindful of <laughs> the judgment that was to come. Until the judgment came. And again, the way the Lord describes the situation as it will be one day, in that final day, uh, it does not depict a, a, a strong Christianity or a very spiritual world. That's why I really could never be like a post-millennialist. <laughs> As, you know, people that believe that Christianity will in time uh, convert the whole world <laughs> um, that, that they will see somehow a conversion of the whole world prior to you know or, or that being in itself the return of Christ the Bible does not seem to give us that picture at all the Bible speaks of the falling away and the revelation of the men of sin so now let me try to tie uh, some of this is my personal view so this is no dogma here. Um, but if I tie the two things together, now, think about it. It'd be very interesting to, to think a little bit about some of the history of the Pentecostal movement, and its origin, and the man that pushed it, and how it came about. Uh, but all, we're, we're talking about uh, the land of the, the end of the 1800s, where men such as Alexander Dowie. Now, if you if you take notes, write this name: Alexander Dowie, a D O W I E, Alexander Dowie, uh, a very prominent man that was instrumental in you know the beginning of the Pentecostal movement. Has he taught? You know what what he taught. He taught that the, uh, I forget if it was the, the 11 revelational or gifts spoken of in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, if, you, if you would go there, uh, just very quickly, uh, 2 Corinthians 12. Um, this is what Alexander Dowie believed. Now, if you can, as you can see here, uh, in chapter twelve, Paul speaks of verse seven. But uh, the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. To each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom. That's one gift through the Spirit. To another, the work of knowledge, the word of knowledge, another gift through the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, the gifts of healings by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. 
to another prophecy, to another discerning spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. Now, Alexander Dowie interpreted these as being historically revealed. They were all given at that time, but during the time to, during the latter reign revival of miraculous gifts that he believed was going to happen because he held to latter reign theology, uh, he believed that uh, these, these, these miraculous abilities will be progressively given by God. And the last of these miraculous abilities is uh, is what different kind of tongues and the interpretation of tongues. So Alexander Dowie taught that the final gift that God was going to give to the church will give to the church at the very end of the of the church era, just prior to the coming of Christ, is the gift of tongues and the interpretation of tongues. That's how this letter rain theology worked. So, now, Alexander Dowie believed he was the second Elijah. And that these gifts were all being revealed in his church. Uh, and, uh, and also the gift of tongues was going to be revealed in his church. Now, mind you, uh, Alexander Dowie built himself an entire city. This, the city of Zion, I think Illinois. And uh, you can still go there, you know, today. And it's uh, he had about six thousand church members, which were all the people of the city. That uh, he built himself a humongous tabernacle and uh, banks and buildings of all sorts. And uh, and I'm not going to get into more of that, but it is a very interesting biography to read. You, you talk about an egomaniac of a, of a very bad sort. Um, so, uh, and he was making these prophecies about 1889, the turning of the century, of last century. And then, of course, uh, you talk about uh, Sanford, you know, Frank Sanford, and uh, and other men of, of this type, uh, Sanford was another second Elijah, uh, who actually ultimately identified himself as King David. He actually went to Jerusalem in uh, uh, the the 1900s, precisely that year, to announce the establishment of the kingdom of David. Uh, it was in uh, Shiloh. Uh, this was the Bible school initiated by by Frank Sanford, that the first speaking of tongues took place. And, uh, Lord willing, we, we have been engaged in a lot of studies concerning this, and perhaps in Italy we'll publish a book concerning the origin of uh, you know, the Pentecostal movement. But, this is to say that, in time, Pentecostalism... Uh, has conquered most of the evangelical world today. Whether you talk about America or South America or Africa or Europe or Asia, uh, 80% of the Protestant church today is Pentecostal. Uh, you know, historians talk about the pen Pentecostalization of Christianity. <laughs> uh, 
so this movement that about which we have many, many, many question marks has actually conquered most of Christianity. And uh, I'm, I'm, I don't want to be too harsh. And I'm not saying that every Pentecostal is an unbeliever. But I'm saying that this movement has been a movement of deception. It may very well be the type of falling away of radical departure from biblical Christianity that the Bible predicts will take place. Because it is very based, very much based on miracles. Crusades of miracles. Uh, where a lot of money flow. And um, and if we, if we study the whole movement, it's very, very embarrassing what that history you know, reveals. Um, in fact, if we go back to Second Thessalonians, notice how Paul again goes back to the very question of miracles in just a moment. Uh, Verse 3, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. Again, that word, see that? So that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now this is in perfect harmony with Revelation chapter 13. Now this is direct teaching. This is not allegorical. And it's very important because it, it, uh, <laughs> it establishes for us very clearly what the apostolic teaching was. And it confirms the interpretation that we have given, you know, basically given of Revelation chapter 13. So, you know, Christianity is going to decline, degenerate. Um, not a latter rain revival, no, <laughs> no. There's going to be a downfall, rather. And that's actually what we're seeing. Uh, let me just raise a question. Will all of this latter rain revival, they say it's taking place, what effect is it having on this nation? Is it getting any better, any closer to God? Well, the forces of evil seems to be flooding everywhere. Uh, that, that, this sort of movement, this, this health and wealth gospel, this charismatic noise type of you know, religion, doesn't seem to have any real uh, evangelical theology or spiritual backbone to be able to be the salt of this earth as once the martyrs were. So, but enough of that. Um, the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God. He exalts himself above God because he wants to be recognized as the God of God. The God of God. And the God of all the universe. The man of sin. So Paul you know, personalizes this, teaching us very clearly that there's going to be a system 
a universal system, but there's going to be also uh, an individual who's going to incarnate the system and, and get most of the credit for what that system is going to be able to realize on this planet. Um, verse 5. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? Now that's a very telling statement. Uh, because Paul was not very long with the Thessalonians. And uh, since we're talking about the end times, the end times must have been part of that body of truth <laughs> that Paul taught immediately the disciples. So, if on the one hand we must be careful and not fall into the intricacies of eschatology and lose ourselves in the midst of all that, we must not downplay the importance of, of what will happen in the end. Because Paul did not. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. Now, that is important too. And it squares <laughs> with all that we've been saying. Paul says that God has been restraining what John calls the spirit on, of the Antichrist. <laughs> the spirit of the Antichrist is that you know, spiritual power. Of, of course, this, this satanic ideology that we've been talking about to construct, to form, to erect a, a, uh, a system that will be able to control the, the whole earth. Paul says the spirit of lawlessness, this Antichrist spirit, has been at work all along. Now, how long has it been? 2,000 years at least. And it has been at work. And we know that, there's, that there have been attempts all through the centuries to accomplish exactly what we've been talking about. Just like First John says, that the, the Antichrist is already at work. The spirit of the Antichrist. Because it's not restricted to one individual. It moves through history because it is alimented by someone else. Someone else. The enemy. Uh, Satan. The dragon. Uh, who, who works in the hearts of, of those who lend themselves to it. That he may be revealed in his own time. This, this man of sin, this Antichrist, this personification of the work of Satan, uh, will be revealed in his own time. And the time has been appointed by God. So that uh, unless, until that time has come, God will restrain the manifestation, the personification of the Antichrist. So he says, what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time? So, uh, what is the thing that is restraining? <laughs> Again, there's been a lot of interpretations. Uh, especially they tied a lot of the interpretation to what it says here. He who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then 
the lawless one will be revealed. So a lot of a lot of interpretations have said something like, well, what is impeding the, the manifestation of the Antichrist uh, will be will be taken out. For example, they said that is the Holy Spirit. The, the Holy Spirit is going to be taken out from the earth because it is the Holy Spirit that is restraining the manifestation of the Antichrist. And as God takes out the Holy Spirit, then the Antichrist is going to you know, reveal himself. Um, and that doesn't seem to be good theology for me because you cannot take the Holy Spirit away from anywhere. He is omnipresent. And now some say, with the taking of the Holy Spirit, the church is going to be taken away prior to the manifestation of the Antichrist. That would be a pre-tribulationist you know, position. Um, I myself would not be of that persuasion, even just because of the passage that we have just read, because the, manifest, the, the coming of Christ will not come until first the man of sin has come. So you first must have the man of sin, the falling away of the church, and then finally the coming of Christ that ingathers the people. But most probably the position of this church is not this one. So, so I, of course, respect that. But I, I wanted you to know where, where we stand. Um, but in any case, one thing is for certain. Whatever we may interpret this taken out of the way, it must be taken out of the way for the Antichrist to be revealed. And it will be taken out of the way by God. So it is God who throughout history has been uh, impeding the manifestation of the Antichrist, causing it not to show for right now. Uh, and with this in mind, I will have you to go back to Genesis 10 just for a brief moment. Um, Speaking of actually Genesis 11, I'm sorry. Now, this is the Tower of Babel. And the Tower of Babel is so important from a biblical standpoint. This is not just, you see, <laughs> uh, this has not been placed here uh, just by chance. This was actually the first attempt, the first historical attempt to build a kingdom apart from God that will encompass all existing humanity. Uh, that's why the Bible places it there. And what happens, you know, the whole earth had one language and one speech. You see that? Globalization in some way. <laughs> because humanity was all collected in this place. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, this is the plan. Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt and for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. This is the first attempt to build a humanistic, atheistic, godless society to where everybody agrees to this uh, grandiose uh, project for man's self-worship. Now, you know what happens. Of course, verse 8, through the giving of the languages, the Lord scattered them abroad 
from there over all the face of the earth. And they ceased building the city. You see, God disrupts. He disrupts the project. And what we have here is just a prototype. It is a prototype of these empires that have grown bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. But God always disrupted them. This plan, this worldwide plan, God has always shut it down. He let it roll on for a while, and then he shut it down. He let it roll on for a while, then he shut it down. That's why no civilization, no empire, even those that had worldwide projects, were never able to succeed. This is a prototype. It's the first. That's why the Bible puts it there. It's not a fable. This is history, and it's very important. And so if we go back to First Thessalonians and uh, proceed to think through what Paul is saying here, uh, it will come a time when that restraining that disruptedness will no longer be exercised by God. God will let it roll on. When he does that, that design, satanic design, will take over. And only God can do that. And we don't know when he will do it. But he may not be too far from doing that. And then, verse 8, the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. Look, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteousness, deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Let us stop there uh, again. <laughs> these are passages that are so full of truth and we are glad we gladly read them also because they confirm the picture that we have been drawing from the word of God uh, so the man of sin the lawless one the antichrist the one who wants to be worshipped as if he were God one day will be revealed and it will be revealed when God will cease to strive with the spirit of humanity, the anti-Christian spirit of humanity, when God will lift up the, re the restraining force, everything will very quickly unfold. And that's, that's what it has always happened with the Lord. <laughs> uh, it's always, seems, things always seem to be so slow, slow, but in the latter days they will go very quickly. The, the changes will take place very rapidly. Uh, because it just takes the, the, the hand of God, the uplifting of the hand of God. And then evil will flood the world. It is this been this way. And so it will be. Uh, again, the, role, the, the, the function or the role of signs and wonders, which are lying, you see, they come from the wicked one. And this, this is so emphasized in Matthew 24. It is emphasized here. It is emphasized in the book of Revelation. There will be a revival of signs and wonders in the letter, in the, in the end, but it will not be from a divine source. It will not be. Um, 
Now, before I get into uh, the, the final section there, uh, let me just say, you know, <laughs> how far could we be from this? You know, and uh, of course we are not allowed by Scripture to say at any day. We do not know, finally. But uh, the Lord also tells us that we need to be careful about signposts. And I would just make a reference to two. Uh, one is the reconstitution of the state of Israel. Um, if we had time, we would read Jeremiah chapter 30, for example, the end of chapter 29 and the beginning of chapter and the then you know, chapter 30. Um, we may have different in Christianity. We may differ in eschatological interpretations, but one thing seems to be true that the nation of Israel is bound to be very important throughout history <laughs> till the end, till the end. Um, that can hardly be disputed from a biblical standpoint. Now, there may be differences in some areas, but uh, Israel remains central in the plan of God until the end of times. Romans 11, Second uh, Corinthians chapter 3, speaks of a conversion of Israel to Christ. Um, and uh, so that's, that's for sure. But also, there's many passages in the Old Testament that speaks of the return of Israel to its land. So uh, they speak of two things, the preservation of Israel through history, Jeremiah 30, 31. Israel will be the only nation of antiquity to be preserved to the end. And boy, that has come true. Blood-wise, you know, ethnically-wise, they're really the only uh, people of antiquity that have survived antiquity. They are still with us. Why? Well, God prophesied it thousands of years ago. Uh, in, you know, Leviticus, in Deuteronomy, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, in many passages. But it does say that before the end, of, before the end, Israel will return to its land. Now, Israel did not have that land for 2,000 years. There was no longer a, a, in a state of Israel there. But it came to be again after the Second World War, 1947-48. And that that's pivotal. I believe that's pivotal in the realization of God's design. So the scripture would have us to think, I believe. So that's already a, something that's saying that had to happen before the time of the end. And it did happen. Which is by itself a miracle. If we want to speak of God's miracle. Because it has never happened in all history of humanity. That a people has remained ethnically uh, compact, you know, and that has survived. He even survived the dispersion. They were dispersed everywhere on the earth, but somehow that tribe of Judah <laughs> has remained intact from an ethical point of view. And that has never happened. You talk about the Romans. Who are the Romans today? Where are the Romans? We're a mixture of all things. And what about Americans? You know, you come from every place in the world. 
and so, but not so with Israel. So these are very evidently signposts of God's doing. So Israel has come back to the land. And then secondly now, we see the setting up of this new world order. Man now really being able to do so. Pushing this thing ideologically, technologically, economically, financially, socially, culturally, spiritually, and I would add religiously. (laughs) You know what has taken place very recently in the heart of Rome? Well, uh, this is the new theology of this Pope uh, Francis. Uh, just a few weeks ago, they had the Synod of the, for the Amazon. It was a synod that has taken place in Rome, completely dedicated to the people of the Amazon region in you know, Brazil. And, uh, and there was a document that was written along the synod to give direction and orientation to all, all the discussions. And you will not believe what is written in that document. Uh, you, you can find it on internet. But it, it practically said that uh, uh, the peoples that live in that region, uh, they are to be embraced as, as children of God. Uh, even as they believed in a pantheistic God. Even as they are animistic, they worship spirits. The document speaks literally at, as the, the, the relationship with the spirits as being a legitimate way to relate to God. Because what the Pope is wanting to build is a system, is a one-world religion where there is no, no more dogmas, no more divisions, but everybody is embraced really under the umbrella of Rome. <laughs> Rome always wants to be at the center. Remember that. Remember that. Uh, but in this new approach, it used to be antagonistic through inquisition, destructive of the enemy. Now it englobalizes everything, incorporates everything with a very warm embrace, and just as warm as it is fatal to those who fall into it. And uh, so these are all signs that we see somehow things are speeding up and we may not be, we may not be very far. Paul here um, speaks very strongly of Christ because it says in verse 8, Then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. There it is. That's the coming of Christ. He will come to destroy the wicked one, the lawless one, the, the personification of evil. Uh, so first, the coming of the Antichrist, then the coming of Christ to destroy the Antichrist. Uh, the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, lying, wonders, and with all unrighteousness, deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that God will work in history as to allow, He will actually send the strong delusion. That is a strong word. Um, we would like to use the word allow, but it doesn't say it. 
God will send this delusion as a way of judgment for all these thousands of years. You have cursed me. You have rejected me. Now, in my workings in history, I will lift up my restraining grace and I will let uh, the evil one to be manifested with all sorts of deceptive ways and many, many will fall for it. For this reason, God will send a strong delusion that they should believe the lie. That will be the purpose of God. That they will believe a lie. That they would believe a lie. Because it is a judgment. It is a judgment. That they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Uh, These are very strong words. But again, let me say... uh, they do highlight the responsibility of man. Again and again, Paul says here, uh, verse 10, they perish because they did not receive the love of truth that they may be saved. And because they did not receive it, but rejected it and rejected it and rejected it, finally God abandoned them and worked in history in such a way that they will believe what they want to believe. Not the true God, but the false God. And yet, uh, I don't think we would be justified in saying that God elected them to destruction. (laughs) We do not believe in uh, double election (laughs) or predestination. You know, predestination is for the saints. As Paul says right after this. Uh, Men uh, are lost and will be lost if they will by their own uh, responsibility, their own choice. Paul says, they perish because they did not receive the truth, not because God elected them to hell. I I regard that as a heresy, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, That's not the heart of God. God did not choose anybody to go to hell. But it is man's responsibility as he does that. Uh, See, we may want to downplay our responsibility. But God takes our responsibility very seriously. You are responsible whether you want to admit it or not. But as far as we... (laughs) But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren. Because by, uh, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and believe in truth. These are the means by which God has saved us, has He elected us to salvation from the beginning of the world, uh, to which He called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you see, this is the antithesis, if we can call it this way. These are this, uh, this, this truths that we may struggle with because they seem to be in tension with one another. Uh, man is wholly responsible for his perdition. God is wholly responsible for our salvation. We're not saved because we deserve it. We're saved because God chose us to save us, period. Everything else is the outflow of that grace. (laughs) But those who are lost, they were not lost because God 
wanted them to be lost or elected them to be lost, but because they did not receive the gospel that was open uh, and preached to all, available to all who will embrace it. And so, of course, it is today. So it is today. I will never get tired, I trust, to say that our God is a God of open arms. Is a God of open arms. Uh, like with Israel, he sends day and night <laughs> to say, here I am, here I am, here I am, come unto me. That's who he is. That's who he is. <laughs> That's the kind of God we, that the Bible portrays that we must preach to. Uh, that, that we must preach and uh, and I trust will be embraced by by all of us here too. The last thought that is in my mind why uh, what what is it that guides the mind of God in deciding the final hour? That's a question, isn't it? <laughs> Does the Bible give us any information about that? <laughs> and uh, we will not go to it right now, but there is a passage, I already quoted it from Genesis chapter 15. When God says to Abraham, I will give you the land of Canaan, but I will give it to you when the sin of the Amorites, of the Canaanites, will it reached the summit of evil. And when their sin will be complete, that's the word used, when it reached the summit, then my judgment will fall on them. I will use you to judge them and I will give you their land. What does that mean? It means that at that moment, of course the land is God's and he can do everything he wants with it. But in, in, the, in the character of God, in the holy character of God, because God is merciful, because God is patient, <laughs> He is not going to, for judgment to come down until uh, man has reached uh, the a culmination point of sin. At least He does so in society, in the movement of society. And I believe that's exactly the same principle that it will follow towards the end. When is it that Christ will come with fire and we will see a revelation of the judgment of God that we have never seen? You talk about destruction. You talk about fire. You talk about things that will dash the whole world and mountains will fall and stars will crumble. And uh, that's God too. That's God too. But why will He do it? He will do it because in the very moment He will lift up this restraining force, evil will flood the earth. And in the very moment, humanity will have reached the point all together to glorify the devil as God. That's the time. When God will say, no more. I've given you all the time that, uh, that was necessary. No more. See, the, the summit in the plan of God will be realized in that one world government. 
That's why it doesn't appear to me that there will be many one world realized one world government, but there will be one. When that one will be realized, that will be the final, the ultimate, the last civilization. And during that civilization, mankind will reach the point of altogether massively adoring the devil as God. And in the moment they will do that, God will say, basta. This is it. It's the end. And he will come to destroy. Having taken his people, That's, I believe that's when the rapture takes place. He raptures the church out of the judgment as he returns to judge with all of his saints. What our eyes will see that day, we cannot even comprehend at this point. But, see, God is so merciful that unless humanity altogether uh, reaches the point of worshiping the devil, he will not judge humanity. That's how soft and tender and patient is the heart of God. So humanity will have to reach the peak of evil before God will say, basta. You know, that's it. And this speaks of the tenderness of God, the patience of God, the loveness of God. How wonderful are His ways. Uh, just to finalize it all, I want to emphasize, we are, even in Italy, small churches. You know, we are small churches. But my encouragement to you, and we've had you much in our thoughts and, and longings this past weeks um, is for you to grow with us in understanding what are we to be what are we to do as, a, as churches we must reason through this to be able to decide make our days count um, uh, to use every minute that we have <laughs> to, to work towards in the proper way in our generation uh, what is the best way to preach the gospel in this day and age? Uh, what, what is the best way to use our resources in this day and age? Physical, mental, in every way. Uh, that will not come naturally to us. There must be a lot of thought through this. Armando knows, we talk about this all the time. All the time. Our identity, our role, our responsibilities. Looking to God as He must work. Without Him we can do nothing. But I, we pray the same thing for you. Uh, number is not a, a big deal to God. We have God. <laughs> we are in the majority. <laughs> uh, but whatever we may do, and sometimes in the will of God, small churches can do more than these mega galactic congregations that we see around us. Because they work understanding the ways of God in a way that perhaps elsewhere does not happen. So, I wanted to communicate to you, we live in fateful days. Uh, gather, pray, talk to one another, uh, and uh, may the Lord guide you to use you in the best way possible in these dark days for His glory. Amen.